Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by my Weeky, you say weekend warrior co-host because <laughs> Mark is coming to me from like five a.m. his time. Mark, such a pleasure to have you here, man. Well, and and if you know how much of not a morning person I am, you understand how much I love you to to do this. But yeah, I'm actually in my my son's father-in-law, mother-in-law unit um, in San Francisco, and out here doing some meetings with. Uh, some hedge fund guys and and a venture capital annual meeting we did yesterday. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, but a quick reveal: no no orange pants today. I got I got the uh, white, but I do have some sock game. I got the uh, history of the Bitcoin logo sock game with the rocket ship on top. But nice. um, you know, lot, lots going on this week. Lots big week. Big week. We actually, I love the the history illusion there because we just had the 15 year celebration of the publishing of the Bitcoin white paper. So happy 15th birthday to Bitcoin. Happy 15th birthday. Well, actually to, to the white paper. The birthday to the of white Bitcoin paper. is, is in To the white paper, but, right. But still, you know, you're, you're right. You and I have been talking a lot about the bond market. We had the quarterly refunding announcement, which I think was the, the, the big market mover this week. It happened on the same day as the FOMC. I think a lot of the movement in markets got attributed to the FOMC, but probably the QRA and, and supply is really the story that's still driving markets, as you and I have covered pretty extensively the last couple of weeks. So we're going to get into that. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Coinbase earnings, which is, I love, I always uh, read the Coinbase shareholder letter whenever it comes you out. You geek you, out about the I Coinbase do. earnings and it's awesome. I do. I mean, you, we've you, got like you one, do better analysis than most of the hedge fund analysts out there. It's unbelievable. Oh, I appreciate it. You know, we have like one blue chip public company in crypto and it's Coinbase. I just figure while it's still so small, I should just read the earnings announcements when they come out. And I have, I am, uh, I have a case to make for you. I think I think we're about to go on a pretty epic run of earnings beats for Coinbase. I think there are a lot of positive catalysts that are lining up. Um, it wasn't a well, second that emotion. And uh, again, I don't even know what you're going to say, but you and I, you know, we're, we're on the same wavelength, but I, I will second that emotion. In sync. So in terms of I've got, uh, and the last thing we've got, we're recording this, it is actually a couple minutes before the non-farm payrolls comes out. So I've got one little fun new segment for us, and then I'm going to uh, get your prediction on non-farm payrolls, and then we can talk about the labor market okay. before it actually comes out. Um, so you and I are going to be in London in March. I'm doing a new little segment here of a historical fact about London uh, every episode. Wow. Here's here's a cool one to to start this off. So, Mark, the, uh, the London Stock Exchange, um, people probably won't know this. It was originally, do you want to take a guess? This is going to be a tough one. It was a coffee shop. The London, ah. the London Stock Exchange used to be a coffee shop. It was founded in 1680 by a guy named Jonathan Miles, uh, who opened Jonathan's Coffee Shop in Bank. Uh, by 1960, there were more than 100 companies trading their shares in the city, and traders would meet at Jonathan's to gather news from other traders and merchants. Unfortunately, the coffee house burnt down uh, in the Cornhill Fire of 1748, and it was immediately rebuilt into uh, the very first iteration of the London Stock Exchange. But Love. 
kind of a cool fact actually about how I, there's a really great podcast. I will, I'm going to totally blank on it now, but talking about how market structures evolved. And now when you and I talk about market structures, we're market microstructures and, you know, HFD traders doing these little arbitrages between exchanges. Market structures used to be physical places. Isn't that just cool how it organically is like, well, where are we all going to meet? Probably the place we all get coffee. Absolutely. Well, come on. It's the same thing. Most people have no idea that the New York Stock Exchange uh, came out of a place, literally the Buttonwood Tree. That's what I was going to say. There wasn't, there, wasn't even, there wasn't even a coffee shop. They would meet literally under this tree and they would exchange. And, and we, you know, we've talked about the, the move from analog, like physical piece of paper. Think, think about going to a coffee shop in the 1600s with your physical pieces of paper and you know, your bank notes and your physical piece of paper, your stock certificates. What if you got mugged on the way, right? That was a bare asset. Then they just took it. And so, you know, eventually they figured, you know, doing this outside or, or in a little coffee shop, it, it, we should probably upgrade. And, um, but it, it's also interesting, you know, you say the 1600s. Yeah. That's a long time ago. <laughs> and and what's what's really interesting about that is it wasn't that far after that that some probably of those same people financed some excursions to where I live normally on the other side uh, in North Carolina, right? And there were people that landed on the, the coast of North Carolina on the Outer Banks in the 1640s. And, you know, we didn't become a country, right, until 1776, obviously. But that was 100 years, 130 years of stuff going on. And I still marvel, I mean, truly marvel at the people who got on ships, made a wood with a bunch of animals and water and said, Yep, let, let's just head for the, the new world. To, to bring it all back to our, our historical fact that we dropped about London, expect more London facts. Mark and I are going to be there shaping up to be the institutional conference of the year. The Goldmans of the world, the JP Morgans, a bunch of the big hedge funds. And uh, the time is, is very interesting for digital assets. So come meet Mark and me, Margin 20. Again, code for you guys uh, in London. Now, Mark, I want to take It will be more. jolly good. It will be jolly good. In fact, it will be brilliant. Yeah, I mean, you can expect more accents like that. Uh, you, you know, the, the the British they really appreciate it when you when you take a hand at their their accent. Right? Uh, it's not the accent; it's just the words. I just love the words. I, I could never do a good British accent. If I could, I'd, my IQ points would jump, you know, thirty points. Hey, you and me both. You and me both. Um, all right. So I I said I was going to ask you. Uh, so we have now we've got non farm payrolls is out. So here I'll I'll actually give you a. I, I'm cheating here because I'm I'm looking. So I haven't seen yeah, it. So. The expectation for uh, non-farm payrolls was uh, 180K last last month. Uh, so that's new jobs created. In the previous month, we had 336K. How would you guess um, we're coming in here in terms of the, uh, in terms of non-farm payrolls? Um, we're going to come in at uh, 250, but we're going to revise last month down to like 240. Mm. So it's actually 150. Miss, soft payroll number here. Unemployment rate, the estimate was 3.8% unemployment rate. It is now, as of October, 3.9% um, on the unemployment rate. So 
Yeah, the initial knee-jerk reaction, which, by the way, has been wrong uh, in the past, is uh, stocks up, yields down. So uh, we're not going to get too tied up on that, but that's the way the market is moving uh, basically in the in the 10 minutes after the data has gone live. And the, the reason, and maybe this is where we can transition into the FOMC here a little bit, is because, you know, even listening to Chair Powell this week uh, talk about his his view on things was basically to sum up, so we didn't get our rate hike. Um, so we just were staying pat on a pause here. But the, you know, Chair Powell did repeat again and again, um, we there is tighter financial conditions now. And I think what he was referring to there is yields moving up on the long end of the curve. But we don't feel like our job is done. We're not taking our foot off the gas for now. And just like back in uh, 2021, when they were really focused on the labor market, and that kept them buying assets too long and doing the infinite QE for too long. I think they're looking at the labor market right now as well. And we had Michael Cow on the program this week. He pointed to some of the union protests and potentially making labor uh, and, and wage gains very sticky. So I think the entire market has been looking at, we're looking for a soft non-farm payrolls number. And it, obviously this is just one data point, but that's interesting to see that it came in week. What do you think? Uh, look, uh, well, you know, how, you know what I think about these numbers. I think they're all all bogus because they're just made up, right? I mean, they're all the birth death ratio. They've all got these seasonal adjustments. I said, what's really important to me is what they revised last month and the previous two months because no one looks at the revisions. They only talk about the number. And so I, I, I think if you, if you go back and you look like over the last year, it was like a third of the reported jobs vanished in the revisions. So they, they, they weren't really there. I mean, it's like a tree falling in the forest. If, if there's no one there to hear it, it, it didn't happen. If, if the job really didn't exist, just because you said it did, it's like when you, you put a, a big number on the first estimate of GDP and then you revise it down, like, well, it was never the high number. It, it's the actual number. Or if you go the other way, right? If, if you do, you know, small and you build up. So the revisions are, are I think, the interesting thing. But I... I just, I still don't understand in a world where we track every human being to within inches based on this thing. And we know exactly when you get paid and how much you get paid and how much taxes you pay and payroll taxes. We should know how many people are employed or not employed. That, that seems like a really easy number. We shouldn't have to use, you know, 50 year old algorithm. I tend to agree with you on that as well. I'm not 100% sure why. It feels just like a little bit of a anachronistic way of, of looking at things, but it's, 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 look, it, the, 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 the institutional bias is we've always done it that way. Like, like why does retail sales not include population growth? Mm. That, that's just, that's insane. If there are more people, they will buy more stuff. And since the population only goes up, that's not like it's super, you know, you can say, well, it's so volatile, but it's not. I mean, there's net immigration all the time. And so, but, but they, they, for whatever reason, that, that data series doesn't use that. And there are all kinds of little anachronistic things that just don't make sense. Well, it's like reporting CPI net of food and energy. Like, but aren't food and energy? Like and shelter and use cars if you're Paul Krugman. 
<laughs> I shouldn't use cars, right? I'm poking fun a little bit at, at he. He's I actually like Paul, but he that was just a funny chart. He's well, he the fan club one, my friend. He's he's not a very likable guy. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I anyway. But I the the labor in terms of labor. Um, I mean, what do you think? Because this this is the look. I I you know want to avoid editorializing this, but I do to return to this this through line that you and I have I've had this whole year. All right, limbo during the summer, looking for data points that would confirm the market moving in in one way or the other. Um, and I think what you're starting to see now is, okay, yields moved up on the long end of the curve. We can talk about the QRA. I think that's what was moving markets this week, um, which is just the supply right of treasuries and and how the, the treasury chose to fund itself. And uh, yields have moved up on the long end. That's tightened financial conditions for everyone. You're starting to see the beginning signs of some sort of landing here, right? Which is employment starting to weaken and bonds starting to get bid. I mean, that's right. I, uh, yeah, that's sort of confirmatory. It's, 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 we've talked about this actually for, for a long time. I and mean, we've actually been doing this for a reasonably long time now. And yeah. um, the thing that I think is interesting is we, we created QE when I say we, meaning they, so they, the Fed, and you know, again, we 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 all know, well, maybe we don't all know, but, but you know, the Fed was created to support the banks, right? It's a private corporation that supports its members, which happen to be the banks, and that's what central banks do, and they're the lender of last resort to those banks to make sure that that they can maximize their profits. And so when, when they cut interest rates to zero and started buying bonds, what were they doing? They were essentially bailing out the banking mistakes of the global financial crisis, right? The banks vaporized their balance sheets, right? Totally destroyed their balance sheets by over-levering. And again, leverage is just a tool. It's not, it's not inherently evil. But as you know, the, you know, the great Howard Marks says so eloquently, leverage can never make a bad investment good. Can't, right? It can and often does, unfortunately, make a good investment bad because you're forced to sell at the wrong time and your equity disappears. So like if you buy a house for cash and the price goes up 10%, you make 10%. That price goes down 10%, you, make, you lose 10%. But no one can take it from you because there's no liability. It's yours. If you buy for 20% down, 80% mortgage, four to one leverage, and the price goes up 10%, you don't make 10%, you make 50%. I love leverage. So let's do 10 to one. Let's put 10% down. Price goes up 10%. I made 100% on my equity. The price goes down 10%. All your equity vanishes. All of it. So all of the bank equity vanished. I mean, I, I think I've told the story on the show. You know, I was with uh, Chase Coleman in 2009, early 2009, right when QE started. And he crushed it in 2007, 2008. He short all the banks, short the financial companies, tonned it. I mean, the markets were down 52% peak to trough. They were up well uh, over that. And, but in 2009, market took off after Obama said, Hey, buy stocks. We, we got your back on March 9th, 2000, 
2009. And by you know this time, November of 2009, Chase was down like 10% and the market was up like 20%. And I walked in his office and he literally throws this, this thing at me. He said, look at this. Like, what is it, Chase? I mean, okay. He says, that's, that's Citigroup's balance sheet. They are bankrupt. Their liabilities exceed their assets. There's no way this stock should have any value. I've been short. I shorted it from $100 down to a dollar. Now it's five. And he said, and then it hit me. It's inconvenient for too many people for Citigroup to go to zero. Mm. And he said, I'm not shorting banks anymore. And, and that epiphany, right, that they weren't going to let those banks go. Right, there was no chance Goldman Sachs was going away. Now Lehman, he could let that go because they didn't like the guy who ran it at all. Like they really just didn't like him. Bear Stearns, they didn't like the way they were scalping arbitrage, arbitraging certain certain markets, and the big guys were like, "Yeah, we could get rid of them, and then we would make all the money." So let them go. And is there an element though of like they I, people love to write off moral hazard? And this, it does, from an outsider's perspective, what it looks like, you have more information on this than me, but what it looks like is they're like, all right, we understand that there's a problem here with moral hazard. We can't just unilaterally protect everyone here. Let's see what it would look like for some of these institutions to fail. And then, and then it's almost like we learned the wrong lesson. It was like, oh my God. Um, No, I I, I wish it were that, right? I wish it were that because that would be logical and natural. And JP Morgan is the bank where all the bad assets go to die. Where did Bear Stearns end up? Bear Stearns on Friday had a $10 stock value. It was going to make it. And on Sunday, it was declared dead and Jamie bought it for $2. Why? To your point, the moral hazard would have been, well, we can't, we can't, we have to let somebody go to, to show the others that they can't. Uh-uh. Basically, they handed those assets. Then Washington Mutual, same thing. Washington Mutual, bunch of bad guys, Angelo Mozillo and, and the, the, bad, the bad mortgages. They're like, JP Morgan gets to buy them. And so they, they parse out the assets. And I, I think I also told you the story about, you know, they, they were going to shut down Morgan Stanley. Literally, they were going to absolve Morgan Stanley in to Goldman Sachs. And the president of Morgan Stanley said, no fucking way am I working for a Goldman Sachs guy? And he got on an airplane and he flew to Japan and he got a handwritten check for $6 billion for 25% of the firm and saved the firm. Mm. And you're like, how do you know that? Because a really close friend of mine was on the plane with him, like held the check for six billion dollars. That's such a nuts story. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at Blockworks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, Blockworks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers, that's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, think big banks, payment providers, et cetera, and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets 
Das London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Point72, the large HFTs, the family offices all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, one, the intersection of macro and digital assets. And where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real world assets, so that's stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all of that fun stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers in crypto doing these days? And because you are such a good listener of On The Margin, I'm giving you an extra code MARGIN20. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code MARGIN20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. Tired. But so, so all of that happened. So now these banks are bankrupt, right? They're bankrupt. Mm. We can't let the banks go bankrupt. We can't let JP Morgan go bankrupt. So what do you do? We'll lend you money at zero, right? You can come to the Fed and we'll lend you money for zero. And then you buy treasuries at 2% and you lever it up 10 times. That is a riskless trade. And that's why JP Morgan for a better part of a decade had no losing trading days. Like that's impossible, but they weren't trading. They were arbitraging. So then you get the balance sheets back. Well, how do banks actually make money? On NIM, net interest margin. So you have to have a spread between what they pay depositors and what they lend at. Well, in, in a ZERP world, there was no NIM and banks didn't make any money. Their profits weren't there, but they were being reliquified on the balance sheet side. Yeah. So then they're like, you know what? We're going to raise rates. So now you can lend at four or 5%. Because you're not, it's, it's funny how this works, right? The deposit rates don't actually go up. Deposit rates are still in banks, zero, half, one, two. And then they do this, these crazy stuff. My, my wife, <laughs> you know, we have this little foundation and my wife uh, was originally the head of it. And then she did her other thing with Meals on Wheels. And so we had someone in the office do it. And then the person in the office retired. So now Stacy's doing it again. And she looked at, at the bank statement and said, what is, what is this fee? And they charge a uh, account analysis fee. And what's interesting, Michael, is that account analysis fee was not fixed. It was variable. And the guy tried to explain, he says, well, you look at how much interest you're paid. It's not as much as that. And she says, so what you're telling me is you tell me I'm making 4% interest but I make one because you charge this fee. He says, well, you can't look at it like as a fee. Like it says account analysis fee right here. And so we're no longer with that bank as of this week. So good for you. Yeah. No, she's, she's like, no, you, that's just a lie. So, so there's, so NIMS expanded. So now we're back in, in the world. And if you look at bank stocks, they, they started to rally. All right. But then what happened? Then they lost control of the long end. And losing control of the long end of the curve is where the damage happens, right? And so what you've seen in the past week is a series of bad economic news, which is suddenly good. 
I, yeah. So I, hate I hate this upside down world. I hate it. It's like, it's like stranger things. It's like the upside down. Oh, there's Good less Mark. people working and more unemployment and, and we, and we have bad corporate earnings and that that's good because now the fed's going to cut rates. They never I, say rates. Yeah. I agree with you on that. I, I think there's, I, I think that is just a weird upside down uh, paradigm as well. That just feels, it, it just doesn't feel right. Does it? It's, it feels like we've messed with the system so much that we've completely w- inverted all the rules that it's supposed to run on. Well, after the conversation we had last week where there was a real problem, supply and demand, like auctions weren't settling since that time, one week, TLT's up almost 3%. Okay. Long let's, bonds are down and they're, they're, they're going to be up again today. Let's talk about this. This was a, here, let me give you the, the, the TLDR on this. The, the, the quarterly refunding announcement is something that it's kind of a, a wonky, right? This, this is where the, um, we, we've been getting into this here and I, I, I'm just, uh, uh, conscious of the fact that many people probably didn't know this existed before, before the last yeah. words become in the zeitgeist. So just as a rehash of, of how this all works, Congress is the one that decides how much money to spend. And then the treasury, it's up to the treasury to decide this is how we want to fund that in terms of where, where we want to fund ourselves duration wise here. So there are like very short term ways that they can issue debt bills on the shorter end of the curve. And then there's, and then there are bonds. So historically, the, the treasury has like to keep this ratio of between 15 and 20% on uh, shorter date funding themselves for shorter dated bills versus longer dated bonds. Um, now, what the, the, the quarterly refunding announcement is, is the QRA is, is when the treasury comes out and says, this is generally how we're planning on funding ourselves. The reason why this was a bullish week for risk assets, and I'm actually talking to Andy Constant later, later today, who has been done a really good job of, uh, of, calling this and talking about it is because love Andy, by the way, and ask Andy, ask Andy about Pokemon go. (laughs) I'm going to lead off with that now. No, Um, I'm dead serious. I am dead serious. You and I are Pokemon go buddies. So basically what, what happened this week when the QRA came out is, is two significant things, which is that the, the, the treasury announced that they were going to release more uh, short data debt. So relying more on the, the two to five year, end of the curve. And if you're following along via video, you can, you can see the schedule here, um, as opposed to longer dated debt, which just meant there's less supply of uh, 10 year, 30 year, 20, 10, 20, 30 years coming onto the market, which is, was the reason why um, there was a bid for, for long, long bonds. They also signaled an end or like a, they signaled that the expectations for um, just supply coming onto the market moving forward is going to go down. And they just moved it into the the shorter end. Now, that was good for risk assets because it means, you know, duration in the form of long bond catches a bid, which is a tailwind for the rest of the market. Um, so the question is, is this going to keep happening? Now look, it, it's, it's, such, it's such amazing wordsmithing, right? To, to gloss over maybe one of the great policy errors of all time. And, and you know, uh, Stan Druckenmiller was talking about this with Paul Tudor Jones, Robin Hood. Pardon? I was going to say, yeah, that you're getting to, this was on my list of stuff to talk about. That yeah, I mean, look, it, speech. When, when interest rates were at zero, this ratio of bonds to bills basically should have gone to, or bills to bonds should have gone to zero, right? They should have termed out 
all the debt. They should have locked it all into 30 years. So there should have been no bills. And you shouldn't be issuing bills at zero. You should have been issuing 10 years and 30 years and 50. They should have issued 100-year debt, right, at 3%. But they didn't. That was a massive policy error. And so now we're, we're bumping up against this, this magical limit of 20% where people start to lose confidence. And, and Paul said, that's it. That's the end. Two years going down here. I, I was short. Now I'm actually long the two year. He nailed it as usual, right? Nailed it. I mean, like almost to the day, the two year has collapsed because they wordsmithed this thing that, you know, 21 is the new 20. I'm like, well, no, 21 is higher than 20. And that's bad. And if you're, if you're taking 0% debt, and re-rolling it to 5% debt because of the two-year now is, is maturing, that's costly for the government. The irony, I think, of this is that, you know, households, and part of the reason why maybe we've been in limbo for so long is that households actually did a better job in terms of terming out their debt than our, the government did. Oh, man, did oh. they ever. And that's maybe maybe part of the reason why things have been more resilient than everyone expected. But what, what we're looking at here, for those of you who are following along on video, is we're looking at uh, just a five-day chart of the 20-year, 30-year, and the or the sorry, the two-year, the 30-year, and the 10-year. And you can see after this non-farm payroll that yields uh, fell. I mean, sharply lower in terms of yields, but you know, it moved. Uh, looking at the two-year, it moved 15 basis points, and. It, it just, it's exactly what you just said. It's, these are all catching a bid basically because the idea would be, okay, there's less supply coming to market and it looks like the economy is starting to soften. So maybe eventually we can get <laughs> the marginal buyer of, of treasuries, which for a long time has been the Fed. Um, they can step back into the market. So I don't know. Yeah, I feel like where this all breaks down, where this all breaks down, war, baby. Um, if we start sending the equivalent of what we sent to Ukraine, to Israel, those debt numbers, that deficit number, it's going the other way. I don't care how many times you say the economy's soft. Um, yeah, I think so. Okay, I, so I agree with that. Obviously, again, when it comes to war, human tragedy, but from a market's perspective, I think my framework for this for a long time has been the important thing is the relation to uh, inflation. It's just the amount of financial oppression that ends up happening. I, I just, it's the relation of, there's a CPI number, there's an inflation number, there's a yields number. I feel like to fix the current situation that we're in, we have to let inflation run above whatever yields are for an extended period of time. And you know, people hem and haul for sort of absolute values, but I think the relative value of those two metrics are what's important. And that's, that's how I felt for, for a good period of time. Otherwise, I just don't see how we, how we fix this because <laughs> I, I, like how, you're assuming how we, it's fixable because you're, you're a, a good student of math. And, uh, you know, my hashtag math is hard. You know, Jan is not good at math um, at all. Yeah. She's not yeah. good at math. Yeah, this was a, a, a tough, tough look for our uh, Treasury Secretary. I, 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 I'm curious what you think um, about the impact here is on on our space of of digital assets, because 
obviously Bitcoin has been going on a little bit of a run here. Yeah. Um, it uh, There have been some more idiosyncratic rallies as well. So it's been a really good week for uh, Solana, which I've been uh, very constructive on. Well, break point. It, it always yeah. runs the break point. And um, I actually kind of wanted to go to Breakpoint this year, but but I had this trip that I had to I take. I did too. And yeah. uh, I really did want to go. And, you know, they, they actually invited me. They were going to give me a ticket. And they were- I like the Solana. Uh, I've just from a a technical argument, I like it because I think it's a, first of all, what Solana did in terms of designed, you, you can look at, especially the major layer ones as existing on a spectrum of trade-offs. And, you know, people get very tribal and say only Bitcoin is good or only Ethereum is good or only Solana is good. I just never believe that. I've just thought of it as a a spectrum of trade-offs where you sort of have very simple, ossified designs on the one hand over here um, and more performant uh, technological uh, designs over here. But that that you there's more complexity. So it requires more more sort of management. And I I'm sort of working on how I really feel about this, but I sort of view them on a continuum of like very commodity, the more ossified, simple, the more commodity-like the the block space looks like. And over here, the more performant it is, the more it looks like sort of an operating system. And it sort of exists on a continuum of those two things. But the Solana, I think Solana as an ecosystem made stark trade-offs from Ethereum. A lot of the other L1s that popped up didn't make trade-offs. They just tried to do cheap block space. And I just, that's how I've always seen it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really happy for that ecosystem. I do to maybe to transition into digital assets here a little bit. The So one thing that uh, I've talked to a lot of um, VCs about is when, it, and it is relevant to Solana because what people say when they're looking at Solana is like the on-chain activity is dead. I don't see anything on-chain. Yeah. And yeah. what I want to emphasize to people and connect these dots, on-chain activity, I think is a lagging indicator in the same way that CPI or employment is a lagging indicator. And the way that the person who described this best is a guy named Eddie Lazarin, the crypto price cycle of innovation. I'm gonna link it in the show notes. But what the first thing that moves is price. The price goes up yeah. of the layer one asset. Everyone feels wealthy. That generates positive media attention. There's this positive reinforcing cycle that kicks in. That brings entrepreneurs they get funded by VCs. VC also funding also lags uh, the price movement of crypto assets. Then eventually companies get built. And then many months later, you start to see the, the uh, following on-chain activity. And that's what, um, there's, uh, none of this is financial advice, but what I would guess you're already starting to see this is token launches in Solana. You're watching this cycle play out in real time. Price of the token goes up positive sentiment for their community kicks in. Some of those gains in soul get rolled into new projects and tokens. And TVL is only just starting to recover. And I eventually what I predict is that TVL is going to start to recover more broadly. On-chain activity picks up, they get more developers, but that's a six-month thing, I would yeah, guess. I, no, absolutely. Great analysis of, of flywheel effects. And, you know, the, the, the thing about this technology is... It's it's unique, right? We've we've never had this before. We've never had a technology that you can own directly, right? You can't own electricity. You can't own TCP/IP. You can't own, you know, all kinds of of technological innovation over the years. And you can own companies that do things with it. You can own apps that sit on top and use TCP/IP. But now you can actually own the the blockchains themselves. And 
That's pretty interesting. Now you could say, well, they're, they're like companies, but without humans and without boards and without, you know, so fine. You could say that, I mean, as opposed to just a pure technology, but, but really it's a, it's a technology. And, and look, I, I'm, I am struggling a lot with, you know, I'll make the maxis happy for a second with this idea that, that Bitcoin could become the global settlement layer for all assets in the world. It's actually, I'm, I'm, I'm coming around to the idea that it's actually possible. They're not just, it's a better form of money. It is, right? Digital gold, it, it is a better form of money. But it actually, you know, my, my on-chain monkeys guys have, have settled multiple projects onto the Bitcoin blockchain, like valuable assets, you know, whether it's, it's the original, you know, uh, Genesis monkeys or whether it's this dimensions, three dimensional, uh, uh, mint they did, or whether it's the Bugatti eggs, right? These are $200,000 collectibles that, you know, are settling straight to, to Bitcoin. And as if you think about this whole decision, if you have an asset, whatever that asset is, title to a house or a stock certificate or, you know, money, you probably feel pretty, you know, you want to hold on to it, right? You want to, you want it someplace safe. And what did that mean in the old days? Bank vaults, right? Big buildings with columns and thick walls and multiple locks. And you put it in there and you had a key to your safe deposit box and it was safe until the bad guys came in and cracked the safe and stole all the stuff. So then we figure out this DTCC thing and this digital thing or this electronic thing. And so we have electronic, but this still gets stuff still gets stolen. Well, now we have digital, which is an enhancement over electronic, which is an enhancement over analog. And there's this, there's these different mechanisms for asserting proof, proof of work, proof of stake, proof of history, proof of whatever. Proof of work, kind of, at least to me, is superior from a, a safety and security perspective, at least for me, right? Just based on the, the power of the network and the amount of compute. And that's, that's the other thing is, you know, the, the longer you're around this, the, the more you realize, and about speculating on tokens, I mean, that's fine and it's fun maybe. And, but it's, it's about understanding the technology, the base technology and how it's being integrated in this, in this giant S curve, right? We're 10% in to, you know, adoption, which means, you know, we've got somewhere between 10 and 20% adoption, depending on what project you're looking at. We got, we got the whole upside of the S curve to go. And, and it's that technological evolution and adoption cycle that's really unbelievable. That's, that's why I'm out here in California at five in the morning, you know, talking on, on the, the tube. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. 
they can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. I don't think about a year and a half ago, uh, Urian uh, Timmer from Fidelity mm-hmm. came on to On The Margin. And he showed me these two charts consecutively that basically changed my entire worldview on crypto. And it was a... Uh, it sure wasn't his sartorial splendor. Uh, hey, I'm, he I'm blinded by anyone by the sartorial splendor. He is always the best dressed guy wherever he goes. And I just, I, Urian's just the best. I just, oh, he's the best. I, I think he's great. Um, all right, shoot. I'm going to see if I can find this. So maybe um, we can put it in the, in the notes so you can see. But basically, there, there are two charts. And the two charts are together how your purchasing power was uh, protected over a very long time horizon, like two, 200 years or something like that. And he showed a couple of different asset classes, equity, uh, gold, bonds, uh, yield-bearing cash, cash. So what you would, what you would probably expect there is, is exactly what ended up happening. Yield-bearing or non-yield-bearing cash, you get absolutely crushed, right? Because it's every chart you've ever seen about the dollar going down over a long period of time. Um, the, next, the next worst thing is gold. The next worst thing is gold because the whole technology is to just preserve your your assets um, or your preserve your purchasing power, not to gain it really, but to just preserve your purchasing power. Then it's like yield bearing cash, then bonds, then equities are like way up here because equity has this great characteristic of compounding. Then the other chart that he showed me consec- the, right after that was the performance of gold relative to uh, these financial oppression regimes over a period of time. And what you see is gold has the crazy run-ups during that period of time. And but 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 then it usually gives back its gains and is sort of like a kind of a meh asset. Like there there are a couple periods though that you can buy it and it's just like a phenomenal phenomenal buy. And what I, the conclusion that I came to putting those two things together is that over a long period of time you want things that are equity like and compound. The, the where where we are right now, the real innovation for me around digital assets is a very new thing called digital commodities. That's what Bitcoin is. That's what ETH is. That's what Solana is. They're yeah. not companies. They're clearly something else. Yeah. yeah. The, commodity is, the commodity is block space. The token is the, it's sort of a new product, but it really is like the unit of account for that block space. And the more valuable that block space is, the more valuable your little portion of that block space is going to be. And we are in a period right now of this crazy stuff that's going on in the, like a lot of people. The crazy stuff, the debasement that we've been talking about is happening in the TradFi L1. The TradFi L1 is ruining <laughs> their block space. Their, their, their claim uh, exactly. on it well, well put. Well is, put. Really, is really poor. They are diluting it. And what you're seeing is a rush into these new digital commodities. But, and this is where basically everyone is, I think, going to hate this, is over time, that's, that's not like you want to own that now, I think, because that's a commodity and that's going to rip up because... But eventually, you want things that have, I think, equity-like returns. I don't think we're there yet. That's why I think yeah. Bitcoin and ETH and these other things are good for a while. Yeah. But I would push back against this, like, just hold till you die because it's a commodity. No, you, 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 you literally, you, die. You, you literally, literally just summarized my paper that I wrote in 
2018 called Digital Gold Rush. It's mm-hmm. like 41 pages in, you know, three minutes. That's exactly oh, that's right, right? Yeah. Um, Sam, what the hell was his last name? Bra- Bra- Brahman, Bra- uh, shoot. Uh, I can't remember. His last. It's like Brahman um, was the owner of the general store here in Yerba Buena, right? Where I'm sitting, right? Which is now San Francisco, but it was called Yerba Buena back then. And uh, they discovered gold in the American River. And he went around and he bought all the picks and shovels and pots and pans and all the eggs and all the flour and, and put it to, to, took them to his general store. And as the prospectors would come, he would, he would literally walk down the street banging a pot saying, hey, there's gold in the American River. And they would come to his store and he would sell them literally $6 eggs. Think about $6 in 1860. You know, uh, and they would go out and try to find the gold. And they didn't get rich. He became the first California millionaire. And, you know, it's, it's about the picks and shovels. It's about the companies. And it's, it's why, I mean, you also described my transition, right? I'm a late in life venture capitalist. I'm now raising our, my fourth fund to do the ABCDs of the digital age, AI, blockchain, chips, and data. It's why I spend all the time with these young people. And I, it's why I'm wearing a freaking hoodie because I love talking to these people who are building these equity businesses of the future and the, the businesses that are going to build and the things you're going to want to own. And y'all have heard my story about, you know, what we did at Notre Dame with, with Google too many times, but it's true, right? We gave them 500K and we turned it into 200 million. And it doesn't happen very often, but man, when it does, it's awesome. It's awesome. And that's, that's what's happening right now before our eyes is we're on a, on a technological evolution and the path is being embraced by the Sam, God, I wish I could remember his last name. Um, but anyway, so. Sam Brahman. I think that is. It's something Bramham. like him. Sam Bramham. No. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll find it. All right. I, I want to go through here. Just this is what we talked about at the beginning. Um, I know we've got to wrap soon, but Coinbase. Uh, so Coinbase came out with earnings yesterday. I'm just going to walk us all through the 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 shareholder letter here. There were there were a couple there were a couple pretty cool things. So it was a, a slight earnings beat. Um, so they did in Q3 of 23, they did 623 million in net revenue. Um, they've really been, for those of you who are following along the video, I've got the historics here, but I'll just walk you through Q3. Um, they're really reducing their net loss. Um, so their net loss in, in Q2 was 97 million. Back, back a year ago, it was 545 million. It's reduced to 2 million. Um, so almost, almost uh, break even from a profitability standpoint. Adjusted EBITDA is 181 million. Some of the things that they called out, and I think this is a very key metric, is... One of the important things for Coinbase's business has been the mix of subscription and services to transaction revenue. So in Q3, they did 334 million of trans of uh, subscription services and subscription revenue, which is much higher than the 289 uh, million in transaction revenue. So bravo to Coinbase. And I say this as a, I'm obviously a supporter of Coinbase, as you can tell. Oh, shoot, mm-hmm. I'm not sharing my screen here. Uh, as, as you can tell, but... I did doubt that they would fully be able to transition 
Um, yeah. Yeah, said that multiple times, yeah. yeah. So congratulations to them for doing that. They also, I think it's interesting to take a look at the subscription and services breakouts that they do. So they changed their reporting a little bit. So they, for the first time ever, they broke out stablecoin revenue. So this is what they get from their partnership with the, uh, the center consortium, which is their partnership with circle, which they revamped, um, last quarter. So they're doing, I mean, this has been basically a one-way rocket ship up. This has been, they do 172 million per quarter, uh, in their last quarter, they did that, um, blockchain rewards here, which is what they do with staking. And they included some more details about how much ETH is staked on the platform. Uh, interest income, custodial fee revenue, and other subscription and services, which is maybe the smorgasbord of sort of their Coinbase One offering, stuff like that. Yep. The the interesting things that they broke out here were, were here in the subscription and services part, which is one, they revealed that they've got 2.5 billion in on-platform USDC balances. So a big part of how Coinbase earns their revenue share is they need the USDC to be sort of originated and custodied on the Coinbase platform that influences their rev share. And that is up from 1.8 billion at the end of Q2. So that number is rocketing up. I have more, a little bit of more color to add there as well. Uh, blockchain rewards revenue, it's down a little bit. Really the thing that ends up determining that is the price of Ethereum. Um, they revealed for the first time, I've looked for this number, I've never been able to find it. They have 7.1 billion um, in their staked ETH balance, which is a pretty material percent uh, for, for Coinbase out there. And that's at a time when there's a lot of emphasis from the Ethereum community on staking and liquid staking in general. And what I would say is I, I sorry, I know I've been monologuing here, but I just see a lot of tailwinds for Coinbase. And this is what they are. One, the knowing what price has done already, the volumes are going to be volumes are going to be up. There's just no way that they're not. Um, so we can expect a tailwind in terms of transaction revenue for this next quarter. And that's at a time when they've just had miss after miss after miss. If you read all the other headlines, it's like all the analysts are so down on their on their uh, on their volumes and their transaction revenue, and it's about to turn around. If you look at USDC, it's amazing that they've been able to grow their interest income. They're getting it's sort of a countercyclical business for them because they benefit from higher short-term rates. So thanks to Jay Powell there. But if you look at the market cap of USDC, it's been down, 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 down because it depegged earlier this year. But that looks like it's starting to turn around and is more, especially institutions coming to the space, that's going to be huge for them. They also have, I haven't seen it broken out here. I would guess it's lumped into other uh, base, which is the layer two that they launched on Optimism. That is generating already very meaningful sequencer fees. And then the last thing is they have this offshore perps uh, perps trading platform as well, which is going to be massive. If you look at spot volumes versus derivatives, especially perps, it's like the the volumes is, is it, you know full order of magnitude larger in in the derivatives market already for crypto. Yeah. So no, look, it's it's again brilliant analysis, and it's why we still own you know the piece that you know we 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 were early investors. We sold most of what we had. Not, you know, not at the peak because um, we were locked up for a little bit, but but we, you know, did quite nicely. But we kept about a third and, and it's been painful watching it, it go down uh, when we, you know, think very highly of, of the business. But for all the reasons you just described, we are, are, are holding uh, and, and believe, you know, we'll, we'll see those, those highs 
um, you know, not tomorrow, but, but in the relatively near term. And that doesn't even include anything for, you know, what is coming, right? When the BlackRock ETF is approved and it's going to be approved, right? I'm, I'm telling you, it, it's going to be approved. And I, I can't give you the exact date, but my guess is, you know, early January, um, maybe they'll do it on the feast of the epiphany on January 6th. Who knows? Um, but, uh, that's, that's coming. And that's, that's going to be big for Coinbase and Coinbase. It's your point. It is the institutional gold standard for an asset that I mean, digital assets that are going to be part of every portfolio, right? The same way that there was a time when there were no stocks in institutional portfolios, it was all bonds. And then there was a time there were no hedge funds and venture capital and buyouts. There will be a time when everyone will have these assets and, and it's coming. And, and that's, and that's amazing. And, and congrats to, to Brian and the rest of the team um, for sticking with it and, and not backing down to, you know, the shakedowns from the three letter agency that I won't name. Um, and by the way, it's Sam Brannon. Brandon, so the the good Sam B, and I love the fact that we didn't talk about that other jerk uh, who who did uh, get found guilty on seven counts. Yeah, uh, you know, I intentionally didn't even bring it up because my attitude about this has been: I feel like it's in the past. I'm firmly looking forward towards the future here. Amen. I remain Amen. very optimistic about. So let's celebrate future. Sam so. Brandon, and let's be the owners of the picks and shovels in the general stores, and let's celebrate this you know, emerging technology wonder that it truly is, right? I mean, the ability to uh, record assets in perpetuity on an open, honest, transparent, you know, well, immutable ledger is awesome. I mean, it's just, okay. it's just awesome. And, and, you know, we are celebrating the 15th anniversary of, of that amazing vision you know, by Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he, she, they are. And we thank them and the original pioneers like Hal Finney, God rest his soul, and, and all the others um, that, that gave us this amazing gift that we could spend the rest of our careers, you know, working in, which is it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So the fact that I didn't get to be an astronaut, you know, I do get to explore new worlds, kind of. I agree. Totally. Well said, Mark. Um, all right. Best hour of my week, my friend. Thank you again for making it. This was oh, a yeah, real no, champ. No, I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't miss it. And, uh, and uh, again, you just know how much I love you. So I'm not a morning person. Hey, right back <laughs> at you, my friend. Right back at you. All right. All right. Cheers. See you, man. Talk to you.